Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine that's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Monday, uh, September 4th, uh, 2023. We're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Well, let's thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. Uh, over the weekend, over the last four days, Detroit uh, hosts its annual Detroit Jazz Festival. And, of course, uh, we were there uh, to cover uh, the various uh, sets uh, that took place, numerous artists, including Regina Carter, who is from Detroit, uh, Kenny Garrett, who is from Detroit. Also, Samara Joy, a Grammy Award-winning artist, uh, vocalist, jazz vocalist from New York, closed out uh, one of the uh, stages uh, earlier uh, today. And uh, we'd like to, um, of course, remind you that in this program, we're going to feature our regular Pan-African Newswire report. Uh, we'll have dispatches on the waning influence of French imperialism in West Africa. Gabon's transitional leader has been sworn in at Libreville. Zimbabwe President Emerson Mnangagwa has been inaugurated for a second term in this Southern African state. And a South African investigation into the United States accusations of shipping arms to the Russian Federation has concluded. In the second hour, we examine the waning influence of France in Africa. Finally, uh, in honor of the Detroit Jazz Festival, we will listen to a rare archival interview with legendary jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan. Uh, this interview was recorded in 1969, some 54 years ago. We're going to go to our music interlude, and we're going to feature uh, Samara Joy. Uh, Samara Joy uh, is, of course, a joyful occurrence uh, within uh, the music world here in the United States. Samara Joy McClendon uh, was born on November the 11th of 1999. She is a Grammy Award-winning uh, African-American jazz singer. Uh, she released her self-titled debut album just two years ago in 2021 and uh, was subsequently named Best New Artist uh, by Jazz Times. Her second album, Linger a While, was released uh, a year ago in September of 2022 winning the award uh, for Best Jazz Vocal Album and herself for Best New Artist at the Grammy Awards for 2023. As we mentioned earlier, uh, she's from the Castle Hill neighborhood of the Bronx in New York City. Uh, she was born in 1999 into a musical family. Her paternal grandparents, Elder Gowire and Ruth McClendon, were founders of the Philadelphia Gospel Group, the Savettes. Her grandfather, Eldon Gowar McClendon, was also a finalist on season three of BT, BET's gospel talent show, Sunday Best. Her father, a vocalist and bass player who has toured with gospel musician Andre Crouch, introduced her to gospel greats such as the Clark Sisters uh, and uh, the great uh, legend of Motown music. She attended Fordham High School for Arts and performed in his jazz band during this time. She won Best Vocalist at the essentially Ellington Festival, a high school competition hosted by jazz at the Lincoln Center. Let's listen uh, to uh, a live performance uh, from Samar Joy. Um, 
This is the Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast. Let's listen in.
the baby.
We got in last night, and I was just walking around Rotterdam. I was like, this place is magical. So, you know, it feels just easy to, to you know, share all that we have with you because you're just so magical. I can't believe this place is real. Now, that was the first song on the first album that I recorded back in October of 2020. I was a senior in college. I believe I was 
about to turn 21, and um, we recorded that song among many others. But it was like my first project, and so whenever I listen, whenever I sing it, and especially whenever I hear the recording of myself from a couple of years ago, it just you know makes me think of all the open doors that that have come and sprung out of you know that album. Because at the time, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I, I don't think any of us did. It's like I don't know what the future is going to hold. I definitely didn't think of you know recording an album in a pandemic. I was like, what is, uh, how are we going to, who are we going to play it to? <laughs> but it turned out to be one of the best things, you know, that I could have done and, and in such a short time all of this stuff has happened. But I'll, I'll tell you about it later, I promise, I promise. Now, <laughs> I wanted to ask, um, since we are uh, getting to know each other a little bit better, I wanted to ask, are there any couples in the house this evening, or this afternoon, this evening? <laughs> How many years have y'all been together? I heard 20? I heard 30? I hear 50? I think? Did I hear 50? Let me not say 50 again. Hold on. <laughs> is 50, is that the highest uh, number that we have? How many, how, how many years? 20, well, well, 25, huh? Half that, but. <laughs> well, say it again. 50 years right up front. Oh! 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 So sweet. Okay, okay. The reason that I ask is because there's a song that I wrote lyrics to. It's originally instrumental, but I put lyrics to it because um, I learned uh, um, after listening to the melody and the solo, there's only one solo on the recording, I went and looked up um, kind of the background on the composer and the soloist, and his name was Fat Savaro, um, but as, as incredible as he was, he only lived to be 26 years old. And so I wanted to write lyrics to this song, imagining what he would have said if he gotten the chance to experience 50 years together with someone. And I wrote uh, the first line saying, nostalgia hit me as I recall the day I knew that I loved you. And so I hope this song inspires all of the couples in this very dim romantic light as the rain pours outside. Um, we're going to keep it romantic in here at least, but I hope it encourages all of the couples to look at your significant others and recall the day that you first knew that you loved them. And this is Nostalgia. <laughs> Yeah, no. 
get a bunch of texts. I didn't realize, or I guess I was kind of trying not to think about the fact that the Grammy live stream for nominations, the announcement was that day. But I was kind of trying not to think about it. And um, I got a bunch of texts in my phone, out of, out of nowhere, 20 minutes away, in a quiet car, on, in, on a train. I got a text, a bunch of texts saying, you've just been nominated for a Grammy. And I was like, I'm in the quiet car of an Amtrak train, trying not to scream because there's no way, what am I supposed to do with all of these emotions? What am I supposed to do with them? Where am I supposed to put them? And um, funny enough, the night before, I had a gig and I met this wonderful singer and she was also from New York, but we had never met each other until then. And so it was like, we say the thing that singers and musicians and even family say, when you see somebody that you're, you know you're probably not gonna see again for a while, let's connect, let's connect, let's stay in touch, let's meet up at some point when we're in New York City together. Um, and so I looked up from my phone and I didn't expect to see her sitting right in front of me and she was watching the live stream. And so she like, I mean, we were both kind of just like silently going crazy. Like, you know, like, I didn't know, we couldn't, we couldn't, <laughs> we couldn't make any noise. Um, but she texted me and she was like, as soon as we get off of this train, oh, it's over, we're going crazy. And so there's a, there's a, there's a video of me um, dancing like a crazy woman in New York City. And um, it's probably been seen by millions at this point. Don't look it up, but, um, <laughs> but I, it just goes to show I had never, I didn't think, you know, growing up in New York and listening to all this music and, you know, happening to have a teacher that knew about jazz and encouraged me to audition for school and, and just all of these things that lined up so perfectly. I never imagined in March of 2022, shoot, graduation, that two years later we would be here together celebrating this incredibly outrageous thing called Grammy, let alone one and two, you know? So, How do you feel? And I'm like, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know because I mean it's just so crazy. I didn't expect it. Um, but I'm grateful, and I'm once again thankful to all of you for being here this afternoon with us. It is such a special moment in time. The first time at North Sea Jazz Festival. Come on. the title track of the best jazz vocal album of the year. This is, <laughs> this is Linger.
Joy, uh, live performance, and of course, uh, we're here at the Pan-African Journal, a worldwide radio broadcast, this special edition of our program uh, for Monday, uh, September 4th, 2023, and Samar Joy uh, was a special feature at this year's Detroit Jazz Festival, uh, played to a packed uh, audience, closing out uh, one of the three stages uh, at this year's uh, Detroit Jazz Festival, which featured 
uh, numerous artists uh, such as Regina Carter, Kenny Garrett, and so many others, a tribute uh, to Barry Harris by Michael Weiss and Paul Washington. And, of course, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Sunday, September 4th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. Right now we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment, and these are some of the headlines in today's uh, Pan-African Newswire. When Gabon's longtime leader was detained in the latest coup in Africa just last week, France condemned the takeover. Uh, but did little to intervene, despite having hundreds of troops in the country. It was a striking break uh, from the recent past. African and French observers say that France, under pressure, is finally shedding its post-colonial tradition of francophonie, uh, an unflattering term that smacks of paternalistic influence and quiet deal-making among elites, as its economic and political powers wane, and an increasingly self-confident Africa looks elsewhere. After repeated military interventions in its former colonies in recent decades, the era of France as Africa's Jordans may finally be over. Quote, in the old days of Franca Afrique, uh, this coup uh, would not have happened, and if it did, it would have been quickly reversed, unquote, said Peter Palm, a former United States envoy for Africa's Sahel region, said of France's, quote, muted response, unquote, to the coup in Gabon, quote, even more than the Niger coup in July, uh, France's inaction underscores that the times have changed. Gabon has long uh, been uh, the centerpiece of the old cozy post-colonial system, end quote. In the last three years, a common thread has linked coups in four African countries. All were once French colonies. Some, uh, like Gabon, had continued warm relations. Gabonese President Ali Bongo Ondimba whose family has ruled a small or rich country for more than 50 years, last met uh, with French President Emmanuel Macron in June in Paris. But a new strain of anti-French sentiment has emerged elsewhere. Russia's paramilitary Wagner Group uh, has cozied up to power brokers in places like Central African Republic. China has eclipsed France's economic influence in Africa. Some form of French Colonies are joining the Commonwealth despite no past links to British rule. You can read more uh, on uh, these developments uh, in the former French colonies in Africa. In other news, Gabon's new military leader was sworn in as the head of state uh, earlier today, uh, less than a week after ousting the president whose family had ruled the Central African nation for more than five decades. General Bryce Gautier Oligwe in Guayma, uh, took the oath in the presidential palace in front of a packed, boisterous room of government officials, military and local leaders in Gabon's capital, Libreville. Oligwe is a cousin of the ousted President Ali Bongo Ondimba, served as a bodyguard of his late father and as head of the Republican Guard, an elite military unit. Speaking to applause and standing ovations earlier today, Oligwe said the military had seized power without bloodshed and promised to return power to the people by organizing free, transparent, and credible elections. Quote, with a new government made up of experienced people, we're going to give everyone a chance of hope, unquote, he said. The mutinous soldiers 
who toppled Bongo just last week, said he risked leading the country into chaos as they then unanimously designated Oligui president of the Transitional Committee. Bongo, who had been president for 14 years, was ousted hours after being declared the winner of a vote uh, that was widely seen as rife with irregularities and lacking transparency. And uh, in other news uh, taking place uh, on the African continent, Zimbabwe President Emerson Nangagwa earlier today was sworn in for a second term after being declared the winner of last month's disputed election as he promised to lift millions out of poverty. Zimbabweans went to polls on August 23rd to elect a new president, parliamentarians, and local council members, despite the fact that the Western Opposition Coalition described the results as, quote, a gigantic fraud, unquote. In his speech after being sworn in, uh, President Mnangagwa pleaded for unity in the aftermath of the polls, promising to revive the alien economy in Zimbabwe. He said that, quote, responsive policies which begun in the first term of my presidency are on course to lift many out of poverty, unquote, Mnangagwa said. Thousands of ZANU-PF supporters uh, were heavily uh, brought into uh, the the uh, capital. They sang and danced as the 80-year-old walked into the National Sports Stadium alongside the First Lady. He took oath of office in front of the Chief Justice Luke Malaba, who in 2018 declared Nangagwa as winner following a constitutional court challenge. You're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment uh, of uh, the Pan-African Journal. I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. And there is a Africa Climate uh, Summit taking place uh, in Nairobi, Kenya. The African Development Bank has promised debt for nature swaps for countries in heightened debt distress amid recent global economic turbulences, increased climate-related catastrophes, etc. Debt for nature swaps are essentially an arrangement between a country and its bilateral or commercial lenders to write off part of its debts or waive interest. The amount saved is then used for nature conservation and climate change mitigation programs. It could also involve a third party, a bank or investor, buying back a country's debt and replacing it with a cheaper loan, helping to reduce the cost and the savings going to support conservation. Finally, in the Republic of South Africa, an independent investigation has concluded that there is no evidence that South Africa supplied weapons to Russia for the war in Ukraine, despite accusations from the United States imperialist state. Uh, it was put out by the ambassador uh, for the United States in Pretoria. Quote, in recent months, statements from various sides have used these accusations to question South Africa's commitment to its position on the Russian-Ukraine conflict, unquote, Ramaphosa said in an address to the nation uh, on Sunday. In a press conference in Pretoria, the U.S. Ambassador Ruben Brigadier uh, claimed on May 11th that South Africa provided weapons to the Russian Federation through the Russian ship Lady R, which docked at the Simonstown Naval Brace in Cape Town, uh, southwest. Uh, that took place in December of 2022. Well, we, the U.S., are confident that weapons were loaded into that vessel and I would bet my life on the accuracy of that assertion, unquote, Brigitte said. He called South Africa's, quote, arming, unquote, of Russia's, quote, fundamentally unacceptable, unquote. Quote, 
Amongst the things we noted were the docking of the Russian cargo ship Lady R in Simonstown between December 6th and December 8th of uh, 2022, which uh, we are confident, according to the United States, uploaded weapons and munitions onto the vessels in Simonstown as it made its way back to the Russian Federation. Ramaphosa established an independent inquiry in the aftermath of the accusations and appointed a retired judge, Phineas Mujapelo, as chair of that panel. Quote, from its investigation, the panel found no evidence that any cargo of weapons was loaded for export onto the ship Lady R. The panel found that there was no evidence to support the claim that the ship transported weapons from South Africa destined for Russia, the head of uh, state emphasized in his speech. With that, uh, we'll conclude uh, this segment of the Pan-African Newswire, of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. Uh, It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Uh, Since that time, it has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches and hundreds of newspapers, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. If you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast for Monday, September 4, 2023, just go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break and uh, we'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week. I've got bad news, baby And you're the first to know Yes, I've got bad news, baby And you're the first to know Well, I discovered this morning That my wig is about to blow I can't remember a thing I've said Now I used to be a sharpie All dressed in the latest style But now I'm walking down Broadway Wearing nothing but a smile I see all kinds of little men Although they're never there I try to push a subway train And put whiskey in my hair I'm a gal who blew a few I've got those blows I blew Last night I was five feet tall Today I'm eight feet ten Every time I fall downstairs 
and I float right up again. When someone turned the lights on me, it like to drove me blind. I woke up this morning in Bellevue, but I've left my mind behind. I'm a gal you can't excuse, cause I've got those blows of Welcome back, and uh, that was Dinah Washington uh, with the track entitled Blow Top uh, Blues. Uh, Right now, we want to hear a discussion on uh, the legacy of French imperialism in West Africa. Uh, Let's listen in. Welcome to another evening of Frank Conversation here on Hard Copy, coming to you from our studios in Abuja. I'm Maupe Ogun Yusuf. From coups to beneficial multilateral engagements, quite a lot has been happening on the continent of Africa. On Hard Copy tonight, I speak with the president and founder of the Africa Diaspora Development Institute, Dr. Arikana Chihombori Kwao. Dr. Chihombori is a medical doctor, a public speaker, educator, and diplomat. Up until 2019, she was the Africa Union's permanent representative to the United States. She identifies as an activist, and truly perhaps not since the time of Kwame Nkrumah, the eloquent and charismatic first president of Ghana, have we heard a voice speak up so strongly on the need for Africa and Africans to unite. Dr. Chihombori is the author of the book, Africa 101, The Wake Up Call. Your Excellency, it's a real pleasure to have you join us today on Hard Copy. Thank you for having me. Keep up the great work. Thank you so much. Well, the very, my very first question to you was going to be, or is going to be, uh, where precisely are you from in Africa? Because, you know, I've seen quite a number of the pictures of you, one of them portraying you as a, as a Ghanaian queen. Well, others say that you're from Zimbabwe. My, my thinking is you might just say, but it doesn't matter. I mean, I'm African and that's all that counts. What do you want to tell us precisely where you're from? <laughs> yes, actually, you're quite right. I am African first and foremost. I'm an African who was born in a place called Zimbabwe and uh, became a Ghanaian citizen uh, through marriage. And so, yes, every, the answer is yes or no suggestions. But first and foremost, I am an African. And it does appear that sometimes what people do intend for bad turns out to work out for good. You were relieved of your AU permanent representative job because powers of B were uncomfortable with your stance on neocolonization, especially with the overbearing influence of France on states it once colonized. But it appears that no one saw the outrage that would greet that and even how much more popular uh, your gospel was going to get. Did you envisage all of this at all since 2019? Not at all. Uh, Even during my tenure, I was simply delivering on my mandate. As a medical doctor, I went to Washington, of course, reluctantly. uh, But of course, once a doctor, always a doctor. 
I started making diagnosis while I was uh, I was in Washington, and my diagnosis uh, first and foremost became the ignorance that we had of our understanding of Africa, not only as as Africans, not as Black people around the world, but even members of Congress themselves, the U.S. government, they really don't understand Africa. So I set out to address the issue of the ignorance about what what was going on in Africa, educating the African diaspora primarily and secondarily those in the U.S. government and anybody else that wished to listen to the message. Because I felt that that was the root cause of what was going on in Africa, the lack of understanding and appreciation of what was really going on in Africa, and more importantly, identifying the root causes. And for Africa, I came to the conclusion that France was the biggest risk to peace and security and overall African development, particularly in West Africa, because of one particular agreement that they would make the African heads of state sign when they were receiving their independence. It was a horrible, continues to be a horrible document that sadly it has been allowed to continue to this very day to the serious detriment of the Africans. So I set out to educate the Africans about France. Others would say, why didn't you talk about the British and all other colonizers? Yes, we would speak about them as well. But the route, the one that is leading the pack, the one that is taking the crown of the abuse and exploitation, it is France. And I felt very strongly that if France can come to the table and, uh, and uh, also uh, renegotiate those contracts, if France can leave Africa, that would be the beginning of true liberation, and I'm talking economic liberation of the African continent. So France is leading the pack because of its deep roots within Africa because of the uh, agreements that they, the heads of states were made to sign during independence of Africa. Yeah, by that document, I, I know you were referring to the pact on the continued uh, colonization. I, I, I think you've made reference to it in quite a number of your speeches, the continued colonization of African states. Is that it? That's correct, yes. That continues to be in place today. And through that document, uh, African countries, the former French colonies, uh, upwards, it used to be 85% of, the, of their bank reserves had to be deposited with the French Treasury. It's now down to around 50 to 60%. To this day, poor countries are sending their bank reserves to France. To this day, poor countries, the first right of refusal of all, all contracts, public, private, large, small, French companies, the first right of refusal. To this day, all minerals discovered yet to be discovered, France has the first right of refusal. To this day, those former French colonies, all their uh, military must be trained by France. All their military equipment must be purchased from France. And France has a presence in their countries and can invade those countries without notice should they feel their French interests are being violated. So at every level, the document is horrible and it remains in place today. I was horrified when I began to see the extent to which people simply did not know. So I made that my mission number one. Because as a medical doctor, if you're dealing with, uh, with, a, with let's say, an accident situation, you first uh, assess uh, the heart. Does the patient have a heartbeat? Is the patient breathing? You don't worry about the broken bone. You don't worry about other peripheral damages. You start with the core. If the patient is breathing, if the patient has a heartbeat, you must revive them, get a heartbeat, get the lungs, get them breathing, and then you can deal with other peripheral issues. So I felt the heartbeat of what was ailing 
Africa started with France. If we can deal with what France is doing in Africa, dealing with the rest of the colonizers will be easy, for their roots are not as entrenched into Africa as the French roots to this day. Well, there are a number of um, Africans who have also delved very deep into this. I mean, I mentioned uh, Kwame Nkrumah, you know, r- right from the days of independence of many African countries. He also worked very hard for the independence of Ghana. We also have literary, mm-hmm. literary giants who have also delved into this. Uh, one of them is a Nigerian, Chinua Achebe, uh, who has, you know, delved very deep into, you know, talking about the colonization and, you know, the neocolonization of African minds and even our literature and how all of this seeps very deep. I mean, Things Fall Apart is continues to be, uh, you know, quite a literary work that everyone refers to. Uh, but some people say, you know, we talk about root causes and immediate causes. Uh, what share, if you were to distribute, uh, say, causes, uh, I don't want to say blame, but if you were to, yeah, maybe I should use that word blame. If you were to distribute blame um, along root causes and immediate causes of where Africa currently is, unable to fully achieve her potential, how will you distribute the blame? I'm going to start with, of course, uh, the, uh, the mind, which is where at the end of the day, that is where the problem really is. The legacy of colonization remains to be a serious issue for the African. It is the legacy of colonization that makes it difficult for us as a people to push back. Let me give a very simplistic example, and I use simplistic examples because I want people to really understand what's going on. Using the example of Niger, there is a mutiny in the school cafeteria. The students are sick and tired of a bully who's been taking their lives for centuries. Finally, finally, They've garnered enough courage. They now have enough knowledge to understand, and they're ready to stand up and push back against the bully. The question then becomes, why has it taken the student so long to, to stand up and push the bully back? It's both because the students have been made to believe that you are inferior. The students have been threatened. The students believe that they're not as good as the bully. The headmaster, some have been smart enough and have tried to push back. Guess what? They were assassinated. But finally, the students now have enough knowledge. Question is, why has it taken this long for the students to have enough courage? But be it as it may, the legacy of slavery, the legacy of colonization left the African in a feeling inferior, feeling they're incapable, admiring everything else that somebody else is doing, that everything African is undesirable, that we're always looking to what those who don't look like us are doing, and we want to emulate what they are doing. That, to me, the biggest risk to Africa's development is the mind. When we can... Yes, go ahead. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted, you know, to focus on that particular question. If you were to distribute, and I'm not going to, you know, take away from the fact Mm -hmm. that you said, you know, the mind is where we need to start from. But if you were to distribute it in terms of, you know, a portion in blame, to the root cause and the immediate cause, because people have also pointed at how it is that Africans themselves are conducting themselves and, you know, do not seem to have sufficient compassion for the people as African leaders, do not have sufficient compassion for the people that they lead. Um, where, how would you distribute this particular blame? Would you say 50% to root causes, 50% to immediate causes, 
In what proportion would you share it? I would say the biggest problem right now is the mind. I still believe it is the mind. Secondly, the average African leader is fighting with their hands tied behind their back and in some cases also blindfolded. I really don't want us to get lost in the mud about peripheral issues. Remember what I said. You get into an accident situation, first you are said the heartbeat. Does the patient have a pulse? Is the patient breathing? We worry about the blown up eye. We worry about the broken bone later. We must go to the root causes. If a president of a country, my daughter, let me take you. You become the president of Nigeria today. With all good intentions, you are told, do not talk about your military. Because we got that under our control as France. Do not talk about your financial resources. We control your central bank. We manage your, your, your financial uh, policies. Do not talk about your finances. We have that under our control. Do not talk about your natural resources. Don't belong to us. All your contracts, we shall choose and decide who builds your country. Now, if you stay away from all that, you are not free to run your country. What do you have? You've given up your natural resources. You've given up control of your financial resources. You've given up control of your military. What kind of a leader are you? I don't care what intentions you have. I don't care how Pan-African you are. I don't care how smart you are. Your hands are tied behind your back and you're blindfolded and you're supposed to be engaged in a fight and win. How? So I'm saying, before we even talk about how good a leader you are, I can tell you, I was joking with a friend. I said, I'm pretty sure right now, President Bazoun is probably happy. Because what kind of country was he leading? He had no power. He had nothing to control. That's a joke of a leadership. So once we understand that, we then go back and say, okay, fine. With whatever you were given, what have you done with it? Now I'm ready to start putting blame on the leader to say, okay, you, were, you had a small budget for, uh, for, for health care. What did you do? Did you at least build one hospital during that year? Now, if it's a foreign minister, uh, a minister of uh, health, who is now failing to do something with that budget for one year, that's why we start putting the blame on local levels to say, yes, as a minister of health, you were given a budget. Show us at least one health hospital you built this year. Show us what you have done. So, yes, we do have our own leadership issues. Leadership within very limited uh, spaces. And even in those countries that are not former French colonies, we still have major presence and control by the multinationals who existed during colonization. They just went low, but they're still, by and large, running African countries. They're the ones who are the major employers, and they can manipulate the, uh, the politics because of their presence within the country. They can gang up against the country and decide suddenly 10 of them, 15 of them, can leave the country, taking away with them hundreds and thousands of jobs. So they still have some soft ways, underhanded ways, of dealing and upsetting African economies. It still goes back to the former colonizers. So as we talk about our issues in Africa, let's not look at them in isolation. Let's understand in a holistic way all the issues that are coming to play when we end up with millions of youth unemployed, why? Understand the entire process. Millions of children going to bed on an empty stomach. Millions of children dying. Women dying while giving birth to another life. Let's understand the entire genesis of what is going on. Because the tendency is for us to be pigeonholed and follow, and follow into this rabbit hole of a tiny little issue without understanding the genesis of that issue. And that is the holistic approach that I want the new African to have, 
to fully have a depth of understanding of what is going on. So we know when we are fighting, is it a fight that is local, that goes to my, to my house? Is this my village fight? Is it my provincial, uh, uh, province, uh, provincial uh, fight? Is it a country fight? Is it a sub-African, sub-regional fight? Or is it a continental fight? At every level, there are certain tools in our toolbox that we need to pull out. But to think you can take a village issue and apply it to a continental issue, that is stupid, that is ignorant, and we want our people to be politically mature and understand what fight this is where we call for unity at the village level, unity at the national level, unity at the party level, unity at the continental level. So your question is a very difficult one to answer. My key point is to say, at what level is this fight? Mm. If it is a village fight, I can tell you how to apportion the blame. If it is a provincial level, if it is a national level, it is a continental level. It depends at what level this fight is all about. Welcome back. You're watching Hard Copy coming to you from our studios in Abuja. Dr. Arikana Chihombori Kwao, who is the president and founder of the Africa Diaspora Development Institute, is our guest tonight. And we're discussing development on the continent of Africa. Well, you haven't hidden your support for what has happened in Niger. You've considered, you say you don't want to call it a coup. You say you want to call it a realignment. Uh, but countries that identify as democratic uh, have condemned what has happened in Niger. They think that democracy is very important to delivering on the welfare and security of the people of Africa. Do you agree with them? I agree. Yes, I do agree. And also, I disagree. First of all, again, going back to the genesis, keep in mind that we have walked away we were made to walk away from our own traditional values, from our own culture, from our own indigenous ancestral leadership values. We are following their guidebook. We are following their ways of leadership. What kind of leadership tells you this is democratic? What is democratic about France forcing African countries, bullying African countries into giving up their financial resources? My daughter, answer me. What is democratic about that? What is democratic about France occupying African countries without their authority? What is democratic about France taking uh, natural resources out of Africa? 90%, 95% of Niger's lithium is powering Europe and France. What is democratic about that? So you're saying, oh, forget that democracy. Let's just, talk, let's just concentrate on this little bit of democracy. It is stupid. It goes back to the, the colonized mind. It doesn't make any sense. Before we can talk about democracy in Africa, let's practice democracy from an international point of view. Africa is not going to Europe to steal from anybody. Africa is not going to Europe to invade anybody. Let's go there first. So before you can talk about that, tell me why 90% of Niger is not electrified when their electricity, their lithium, is powering Europe. Answer that. Now we can talk about democracy. Let's not be stupid. Reality is, what is happening in Niger is those students in that dining room. It's now immunity, immunity uh, a mutiny. They want to keep their lunch. They're saying this time it's going to be different. We just want to keep our lunch. How sure are we that this is actually going to deliver lunch to the people of Niger? This is not the first time we've witnessed schools 
in African countries. And often, I mean, Nigeria is a very good example. Every time a military junta has taken over, you always find a very good speech. Uh, they want to bring, demo- they want to bring, uh, development to the people or they want to fight corruption. And oftentimes, most times we see that the people rejoice for a while until we now begin to see that, oh, the people are dissatisfied and then begin to yearn for civilian rule. How are we sure that what has happened in Niger, what has happened in Burkina Faso, what has happened in Mali, that these developments will actually bring about development to the people of those countries? So what is your solution, my dear daughter? Let's just, let, let things be. We're going to keep trying. We will keep trying. What happens is if Niger does it alone, they're not going to succeed because it's too small a country. It's already fighting against monstrous forces. That is why this moment is calling for everybody to support Niger. We must come together as a continent. We must speak with one voice. If we do not speak with one voice, even those who tried, are you trying to say Kwame Nkrumah didn't try? He, he tried, but he was alone. He was not supported by many African countries. Had Africa come together when African Union, at the African Union in, in Addis Ababa in 1963, when Kwame Nkrumah and the Casablanca group were saying Africa for the Africans and African Union now, had the Casablanca succeeded back in 1963, Africa would be sitting in a different position. So my message to the Africans is, any African country that tries to stand up against the West alone without the support of other African countries, they are not going to succeed. Make no mistake about that. We are a tiny little dot in the ocean. But when we come together as a continent, that's why Niger must be supported, Mali must be supported. They have taken a position that is right, a position that is good for the Africans, a position that simply says exploitation of the continent can no longer continue. My daughter, you tell me, are you okay with all our natural resources creating millions of jobs for European kids when our kids cannot get jobs because our natural resources are not getting value addition? Are you okay with that? Do you call that democracy? Big question. I, I think that's a question that all Africans will have to answer, but it's certainly not all bad news. I mean, for the longest of time, you have, you know, promoted very strongly the African Continental Free Trade Agreement, which was signed in 2018, and quite a number of African countries have signed on to that. I think we saw the very first trade happen in 2021, uh, but it's been slowly being implemented. Are you frustrated somewhat with how slowly things are moving with AFTA? Let me tell you the honest goodness truth when it comes to the African Continental Free Trade Agreement. It's a wonderful idea. It's the one thing that the African leaders have been able to accomplish uh, that was discussed during the creation of the OAU. Of course, we talk about one uh, military, we talk about one currency, what customs union and all that. Of all the required pillars of Africa's development, the trade is one issue that the the heads of states have been able to deliver. However, here is my biggest fear. As long as there's no free movement of people, it's going to be very difficult to implement the African continent of free trade area. As long as we still have the exodus of African uh, capacity, uh, we are going to have issues with implementation of the African continent of free trade area. My biggest fear right now is that because of the African continent of free trade areas, we have now put a system in place where if we do not wake up to the reality, we are going to be handing Africa back to the colonizers, this time on a silver platter. Who has the funds to build the transcontinental highway? It's not us black people. 
who has the funds and the capacity to bring about the development, to build the port, to build uh, the infrastructure that is required? It is not us. So who are the companies that are getting the contract to implement the African continental free trade area? They're Chinese companies. They're Middle Eastern companies. They're European companies. They're Indian companies. It's everybody else except us. I have not seen a push to promote Africans coming together as a continent. I've not seen a push to line, line up the opportunities and say 60% of these must be occupied, must be run. These contracts must be given to Africans, must be given to black people. I've not seen that document that's demanding that X amount must stay with the people. That is where I see the problem going to be. If we do not manage the implementation of the African continental free trade area, we are going to be handing Africa back to the colonizers this time on a silver platter. That is my, my, my fear, and I hope it does not come to fruition. We need to make sure that we speak very strongly to it. We need a document that says at a minimum, 60% of all the contracts must go to the Africans. And then we set out a plan to make sure that the Africans are educated and informed about the process of getting this contract. We must also be very clear about how to mobilize the funding so Africa can be built by the Africans for the Africans. We do not mind foreign direct investment. We do not mind our friends coming to help us. But Chinese do not look to outsiders to build China. Europeans do not look to outsiders to build Europe. No one else looks outside their region to build their regions. Why do we Africans why must we always look outside? But also, the Secretary General for the African Continental Free Trade Area must go the extra mile to educate and inform the Africans and also open doors for those opportunities for Africans to build the Africa that they want through the African Continental Free Trade Area. If that is not done, colonization 202 is around the corner. So what would you then make of this summit, which has just concluded in South Africa, the BRICS summit, which is rounding up now, they say that their bank is going to be, that's the bank, the international, the new development bank, which is uh, the name of the bank owned by their BRICS nation, uh, will now be lending out at least 30% of its uh, loans, giving it out uh, in local currency. Do you think this is a good development? I think it's a very good development, but again, it has to be managed. My understanding of that development bank is that the funds will be given to the country, and then their job is to follow behind and, and monitor the process and the manner in which the funds are being used. I think it's a good uh, step in the right direction. I was actually able to meet with their, um, uh, one of the directors uh, for, the, uh, for that bank, a uh, very jacked-up lady who understands Africa well, um, so I think if we do our part as Africans, that's actually a very good thing. But we must also do our part. The problem with us Africans is always implementation on the ground. So it's about education. It's about really coming up with a special focus and, and talking to the people. Let them get a buy-in from the people. Because once people have a buy-in, it's easier for them to move forward. But if the monies are just flooded into the country without the buy-in from the, from the people, without really letting them know, not only from their own little community point of view, but they must look at it and say, what I'm doing is not only for my community, but it's for my country, it's, my, it's for my side of region, and it's for my continent. Let people feel proud of what is going on. Let them understand 
said, what I'm doing right now is actually a fight against the Chinese. It's a fight against the Europeans. So when we go to the world stage, we can stand up together as Africans and say, look what we have done. Just to the extent that the Chinese are proud of having built the China that they built. We too must have that spirit. So that spirit must be, must be, must be cultivated from a village level, from the country level, from sub-regional level, and ultimately to the continental level. So as the funds are being pushed into Africa, are we educating our people? Are we making our people feel proud of what they're doing and the effects of what they're doing, how it percolates to a better Africa, which is what we want. Mm. So yes, the bank is a good thing. It's a good starting point, and we can actually use it to benefit our participation. And by our, I mean us Africans, our participation in the, uh, in the implementation of the African continental free trade area. Great outcome, but it must be nurtured. Mm. Well, you've been doing a real yeoman's job in the diaspora. Do you ever hope to come back to Africa someday and maybe run for office? Just joking. I mean, I'm just asking. Has he ever no, in mind? I, I am not going to run for any office. The only office I would consider running is the chairman of the African Union Commission. That's it. Because I do feel that there is a need for a voice there. Right now, there is no voice. African Union is like a dead entity. Um, and something needs to happen there. African Union is one entity that could speak on behalf of the continent, that could speak and call out those who are abusing, abusing Africa. It is the one place that we could actually let the world know that the exploitation and abuse of the Africa, Africa, African continent has got to come to an end. That voice is not there. That is the only place that I think I can make a difference. Besides that, no. I'm already in Africa, by the way. I spend half of my time in Africa now. I travel uh, quite a bit, and uh, I intend to continue to do so. Well, may God bless and keep you in your travels. Thank you so much for coming on Hard Copy, Your Excellency, Dr. Arikana Chihombori Kwao. Thank you for having me, my daughter. Keep up the good work. We are so proud of all the work that you guys are doing. We look forward to continued work as we build the Africa that we want, and as we also stand up on the tallest mountain and tell the world, abuse and exploitation of Africa has got to come to an end. The revolution for Africa's liberation has, has arrived. And those who don't jump on the bandwagon, your days are numbered in Africa. Thank you. Well, that's the program tonight. We hope to hear from you and also encourage you to get a copy of Dr. Arikana's book, Africa 101, The Wake Up Call. You may send us your feedback on the handles showing on your screen. Thank you for watching. I'm Mark Welgreen, your sir. Good night. Welcome back, and that was uh, Dr. Shihambori Kwe, uh, the former African Union ambassador uh, to the United States, uh, speaking on the legacy of uh, French imperialism on the African continent. We'll take a break. We'll be back with our concluding segment uh, for uh, the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. We'll be right back.
piano playing of Hayda Brooks, and you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, this weekend, the last four days uh, in Detroit has been characterized, as is every year, with the Detroit uh, Jazz Festival. Uh, this was the 44th annual Detroit Jazz Festival, and it featured so many great artists. And, of course, uh, people like Samar Joy, uh, there was a tribute uh, to uh, Barry Harris uh, by Michael Weiss and others. And uh, right now we want to go back uh, and present a rare archival interview with Lee Morgan, a jazz trumpeter uh, who uh, made major inroads into the industry uh, during the uh, 1960s and 70s. And uh, this is a rare archival interview uh, with uh, Lee Morgan from 19. 19- 69. Let's listen in. Welcome to All Night Jazz. This is Dan McCloskey. I'll be here for one hour tonight with a special one-hour program. Tonight we'll hear an interview with jazz trumpeter Lee Morgan.
Sidewinder with Lee Morgan. We're over here at the Both and Jazz Club. We're talking to Lee Morgan. You hear the Sidewinder in the background now. That's probably uh, one of your biggest hits, isn't it? Wouldn't you say? Yes, Dan, that is the biggest. Um, I still collect royalties on it. Uh, it's had about 30 different artists that have done it since I've done it. Uh, there's uh, lyrics to it. And uh, Woody Herman, among others, have done the lyric version. Uh -huh. I didn't write the lyrics myself. The lyrics were written by, um, well, they're pretty well-known lyricists in New York, Hugo and Luigi. And um, I had maybe three or four people give me samples, and, and, and I settled on theirs. And like I said, uh, it's about, I would say, at least six or seven um, lyric versions. Uh -huh out of the whole thing and, and roughly about maybe eight or nine uh, instrumental versions other than mine. Quincy Jones has done it. James Browns has an album out where just his band plays different selections. They do it. Uh, Hugo Winterhalter and Strings. Like I said before, Woody Herman. Uh, the Double Six did it in Paris. It's been quite uh i had it on a commercial you know a couple of years that's ago that's right yeah it was during the Chrysler product world series on it yeah well during the football games and you know the dodge rebellion wants you that thing but uh it's been a very uh very nice to me that too how has it affected your uh uh gigs you know playing around i was, was so well, it yeah well you know that kind of like started the ball rolling really because at that time um I had rejoined the Jazz Messengers uh, after taking Freddie Hubbard's place, who had originally taken my place. You know, I played in the Jazz Messengers for three years, and then after I left, Freddie took my place, and he played for roughly around the same amount of time. And then uh, when he left, he left kind of like um, very suddenly, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. Art asked me would I come in at least until he can get someone else. And I ended up staying in, in the band for another uh, close to two years. And during that time is when the Sidewinder came out. That was so, about uh, 64, right? Yeah, 64, late 64, early 65. And it kind of started the ball rolling, and it was, I think, the most important um, thing I had in helping me to uh, start my own little thing going with my own group. Uh-huh. You played with Dizzy Gillespie, right? Yeah, well, that was that was a long time ago. The original, um, my original solo flight. You know, like the first time the chick chick left and left was with Dizzy. I was 18. I had just turned 18. I was in the Philadelphia Conservatory, and uh, that was the beginning of everything for me. The beginning of a, a wealth of experience that I got with the band, and to be able to play with people like Wenton Kelly and Charlie Pacip. Benny Golson, Quincy Jones, Ernie Wilkins, uh, Phil Woods. All these guys were in the band. Right, everybody, you know. And, wow. Uh, it was a beautiful band. It was an interracial band, and uh, everybody got along. It was never any uh, problem, and I learned a whole lot, you know. Uh, it wasn't a big band. You have to blend with 16 or 17 other guys, you know, and you get a real feeling of community kind of a thing, you know. Uh, there's always somebody to hang out with.
That's a little segment of That's All with the Dizzy Gillespie Band. And you heard Lee Morgan soloing there. Sounded very good. <laughs> that was a long time ago. But, um, you know, it's a certain way that we, uh, especially a brass man, has to solo with a big band. Because um, the band comes in behind you, you know, at times playing uh, shout courses in the background and things, and you have to be uh, strong enough to still be heard over all of that. You know, it's one thing when you're in a, in a recording studio and uh, they might have you uh, all along, all alone in a, in a little booth with earphones on, you know. But when you're on the bandstand and you're back there and all you're doing is just standing up, you know, you, you, haven't, you haven't even come out to the front to the mic or something, then you really have to be powerful. And I noticed this is uh, something that Dizzy always had, you know, no matter how strong and how loud the band was playing behind him, he would just soar all over the band, you know. He would just take off. Right. And uh, since it comes with time, you know, I think your, your lungs and everything just get stronger by playing in, in a brass section. I know mine did. In fact, they were probably stronger then than they probably would be now um, for that kind of a thing section work. Was this recorded during that time with Dizzy, uh, just one of those things from the album The Cooker? No, I think The Cooker was a little later. The Cooker was around the time that I joined Art Blakey. Uh, I would say around late 58, early 59, because Hank Mobley, it was supposed to be Hank Mobley and myself. Uh-huh. Right around the period, though, uh, middle of 58 or so. Uh, why don't we hear that? That's got a, a very nice feeling to it. You really, really played well on that thing. Just well, one of those things. This is the first album that I actually wrote some original tunes for, that uh, Numa and the Heavy Dipper. They were the first two tunes that uh, were Lee Morgan originals that were recorded. That was my uh, initial flight as a composer, jazz uh -huh. composer, Numa and Heavy Dipper. Maybe we should play one of those. Well, just one of those things is a very exciting tune. It's supposed to be Night Tunisia. We uh, gave it a 6-8 kind of a thing. And Philly Joe Jones, as you see, I have Philly Joe and uh, Paul Chambers. Had an all-star rhythm section, Bobby Timmons. And like I said, um, it was supposed to be Hank, but Hank couldn't make it, and I didn't want to cancel the date. And I just met Pepper Adams in the... He was fantastic. I never heard anybody play a baritone like that, you know? <laughs> and uh, so at the last minute, we had to alter the music because it had been written for trumpet and tenor. And if you'll notice, uh, on a lot of the tracks, he's playing way up in the top of his horn, trying to get the same kind of thing that it would have been if it had been a tenor.
Well, you heard two things there with Lee Morgan. Just one of those things, and then The Lion and the Wolf, written for uh, Alfred Lion and Frank Wolf, who uh, were the owners of Blue Note Records. Back in those days, it's still running. Yeah, well, um, they sold the company uh, about a year and a half ago to Liberty Records. And Alfred Lyon, who was kind of like, he was the one who uh, did most of the recording. Frank Wolf usually handled, handled um, he took a lot of the pictures, and uh, he was more or less the accountant and, uh, you know, dealt with the figures. But they were equal partners in the, in the venture. And uh, when, Alf, when they decided to sell, Alfred uh, had just remarried. And he just decided that was it for him. However, Frank Wolf is still um, with Blue Note Records. He's still he's, producing it. Right, he? he still does uh, most of the record dates. And uh, he still takes most of the pictures. And um, he's the last link with the, the old company. And this was a tribute to them. Since it's Alfred Lion and Frank Wolf, that's, how I, uh, that's what I named the tune, The Lion and the Wolf. It's kind of a neat thing there. Your group in San Francisco is really sounding excellent. Who is in your new group now? Well, the group I have out here in San Francisco at present is uh, Harold Mayburn, who is on the Gigolo album, and uh, I have another one he's on, too. I don't think it's come out yet. And um, Frank Mitchell, who used to be a jazz messenger, I think he's on the album Buttercorn Lady. That was the group that Art had when he had um, Chuck Mangione, the trumpet player. And other than that, I think that's about the only thing Frank made up until the sessions that he's done with me. Now, this group has just recorded two albums, but it will be a little while before they come out because we just made them. Then I have Mickey Roker on the drums, Herbie Lewis on the bass, and that rounds things out. I double on flugelhorn at times, and Frank doubles on soprano saxophone. Although to come out here, I just brought my trumpet, and all he brought was his tenor. <laughs> where, are you, where are you doing most of your gigs these days? New York? Yeah, well, uh, we work in uh, New York. Um, you know, a band has to stay on the road. Like they say, either appearing or disappearing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we've, uh, we, well, we worked all the clubs in New York, and uh, we work Philadelphia. Uh, Boston, Chicago, Detroit, Washington. It just so happens that it's just, it, I think it just turned out that way. This just happens to be the first time that we've been, I would say, west of Chicago. You were out here with the uh, Art Blakey uh, oh, Messengers, yeah, I, right? I've been to California. A few years this ago. Is maybe my eighth time. Uh -huh. here, but yeah. I mean, in, in, within but the last year. my so. group, this is the first time for my, yeah. for my group, me as a leader. The group is sounding uh, even more vibrant than it does on your records. It's really alive. Well, this particular group has, like I said before, you know, I have maybe one guy on one thing and maybe somebody else on another album, but the particular group that I have now, I haven't had any albums come out with the personnel that I have at this moment. Now, we just made a few things, like I said before, but it hasn't been released yet. Yeah. Where did you get your... Uh I don't know what you'd call it. Uh, I, I don't know how to type it. Like, take a track like Caliso has a very uh, Latin sound to it, or African, or uh, I, I really don't know what to say about it. It's I noticed this on a number of your uh, compositions. This is one by you, written, uh, written by you. Where, where where does that come from? What influences that? 
Oh, that's a hard question. Uh, well, you know, music just comes. Uh, when I write, uh, you know, you can't force writing. It has to come. I just sit down and doodle around on the piano, and sooner or later something comes. Now, sometimes uh, you can get a basic pattern and maybe write two or three different melodies, uh, things that would be completely different in structure but be, would be re related harmonically maybe, you know. But uh, I usually try to make things sound different uh, and try to have a well-rounded thing. I actually uh, don't have any format for writing. It just uh, I just try to give them titles after I've composed them. The title is always usually last to come, you know, uh -huh. after... Uh, well, here, this one, uh, Kaliso, I was reading the liner notes, said something about uh, African influence. Maybe that was Kariba. Well, now, you mentioned Kaliso. Actually, uh, now, if, you, if you said Kalipso, that's what you would have. You yeah, know? So yeah. instead of Maybe Kalip, that's I put Lee in there, and it's Kaliso. Well, it's a definite uh, kind of foreign influence on it. Uh, let's hear it and see what happens.
We heard two tracks there, Caliso, and then from the album Cornbread, we heard Ciora, a nice slow ballad. Both of these were written by Lee Morgan. Well, Ciora is actually what you'd call, like, it has a bossa nova beat behind it. And Ciora, a lot of people have asked me, uh, who is Ciora? Ciora is a very... Who is Ciora? <laughs> I'm glad you asked that. <laughs> Ciora is the wife of one of my best friends. And she's always been after me, you know, for the last few years, telling me, you know, you write tunes for everybody else. And why don't you write something for me? And I used to tease her and tell her that I would write, I'm going to write old funky blues or something for her. But <laughs> that's what I ended up writing, uh, Ciara. And um, that is one of my my favorite tunes. I like the chord pattern on it. And uh, I just get a good feeling when I play on it. It's a quiet kind of thing. And you have to approach it kind of different, you know. And if you knew the, if you knew the woman, Ciara, um, she has a, a melancholy thing, kind of very similar to the tune. Herbie Hancock plays a very beautiful solo on that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I noticed he's uh, made appearances on more than one of your albums. Yes, well, you know, um, he's has been uh, a Blue Note artist for the last few years. And uh, there's so many of us right there on that label that just about most of my favorite musicians just happen to be on the Blue Note label. This is not a plug or anything, but uh, no, it's true. that's just the way it happens to be. Uh, Herbie and... Uh, of course, he's left now. He's yeah, I now. understand he just went to A&M, I understand. Oh, was it A&M? Yeah. Um, but uh, Wayne Shorter and Joe Henderson, uh, Jackie McLean, they have a wealth of artists over there right now. Yeah. Usually it's not too hard to... Although it's not necessary for you to have to, I mean, you know, I could use anybody I want to use. It's just that. Uh, Do you always pick the men on your dates? Oh, of course. I think everybody does. After the, all, the, the your producer session. doesn't. Uh, oh no, doesn't no. enter in. That would be intolerable. Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Not with jazz. A and R men and producers have a lot to do with a lot of rock and roll and deciding um, what tunes and what kind of music you should play or maybe you should do this, the new Broadway show or this or that. But um, they'll come up with suggestions. A lot of times they have a lot of hip ideas, but as far as uh, the music or the instrumentation, uh, so far I've always had a, like, more or less carte blanche, you know, I could do whatever I wanted to do. In fact, I don't think I could have really existed any other way because uh, I think it has to be left up to the musician's discretion who and what and why and where. Right. Well, let's play a few tracks to... Uh, I know you got to get back out and do another set here. Uh, play a few tracks from Caramba and Charisma, which are uh, two of your most recent albums. I was noticing that Charisma, the one that just came out, I guess about uh, three weeks ago, a month ago, uh, was recorded back in 66. Was, uh, right. What was the reason for that? Well... That it just came out. They did that album, and it was a good album, you know? And uh, this was just about the time where the acquisition was made from uh, the change, the change uh, when they were talking about uh, changing over from um, Blue Note to Liberty, like I went into before. To the big merge. Right, and uh, there was a little discrepancy as to uh, just which records, you know, because the artists had a lot involved, because a lot of the artists' um, contracts were just about over, and a lot of them didn't want, uh, you know, didn't want to go on. Uh, 
to another company. I myself at that time, uh, I was right in the middle uh, because my contract was only about halfway, so I, I had to stay with it no matter who they uh, went with until it was over, you know. Anyway, uh, they released, went on and released Caramba and, and, and the Gigolo, but I always liked that Charisma album. And I kept on saying, well, what, what about that album? You know, because it's a drag, really. I think your music should be released as you make it. Yeah. Well, is it pretty much chronological except for this Yeah, well, us- yeah, it usually is, you know. In and other words... It's usually I'm usually running a little bit behind merely because of I was making mere four albums as a leader a year. But it's very seldom that a record company will release them as fast as you make them. So before you know it, uh, you might have a little backlog. This is something now I'm trying to watch out for. Uh, my new contract, I only make two a year from now on. That'll kind of slow yeah. things down and I can really concentrate more on the music. I see you're writing uh, all the compositions now uh, on your albums. There's at least a tendency towards that. Yeah, well, it depends on these dates. You know, sometimes I might do them all. Sometimes I might just do one or two. Uh, you know, like now, for instance, uh, Caramba. No, not Caramba. Let's say the Gigolo, for instance, now. They have a... A tune credited with me uh-huh. that's not really mine. I think it's the tune Trapped. Yeah, Trapped, number two. They had me down as the composer for four out of five tunes. The only one is You Go to My Head, which uh, everybody knows is not mine, I guess. <laughs> but uh, Trapped wasn't mine either. That's a mistake. That should have been uh, listed as Wayne Shorter composer. And I think it's in his own publishing company, which would be a Miyako Music. No, I'll make a long of that. Make a note of that here. How do you like the big band and the? Welcome back, and uh, that was an extensive interview uh, with Lee Morgan from 1969. That's going to conclude the program for today. You've been listening to the Pan African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast, and uh, today is now uh, early Tuesday morning. September the 5th, uh, 2023, and uh, you have been uh, listening to our program, which is broadcast live uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit, and uh, if you'd like to have access to today's uh, Pan-African Journal special worldwide radio broadcast, just go to our website at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire, just go to our website at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. We're going to close out uh, with the legendary Barry Harris uh, from Detroit, uh, where at the Detroit Jazz Festival, the uh, last set uh, featured uh, Michael Weiss and Peter Washington uh, and Lewis uh, who, of course, uh, was on drums, uh, a tribute to the legendary Barry Harris from Detroit. We'll listen to Barry Harris uh, from an album entitled Luminescence. This is uh, Abayomi Azikawe signing off, and have a beautiful week.